0: Away from. Get Get it together! Scum, scum! 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 Go back to hell! No Go home! Scum! Pigs! Sorry I'm late. Who goes there? Henry Himmler. What clavin claimed you? California clavin. Cucamonga. California? Yeah, I was just passing through town and uh, looking for something to do this evening. There was nothing going on at the Rotary Club. I heard about this. Well, welcome, Henry. I'm the Grand Cleagle. Oh. California thing. Pig face scum. What's the occasion here? Oh, some undesirable carpet bagger. Uh, I think. Damn. Boys, What's I wrong? just got a closer peek. There's nobody in there. We're wasting our time. And I washed all these sheets. Oh, sorry. Hi, fellas. Hank Hillmer. Howdy. Hi, Hi, Hank. How you how doing, Hank? Hank? Cross won't burn. Nobody home. Hell, it ain't like it used to be. You said it. What's going on, everybody? Oh, What's man. going yeah. on? 13 guys out here tonight. Oh, wow, man, this scene is great. This is kind of a scene from the movie in, you know, Fetch Live starring Clukies. Chevy Clukies. Chase, <laughs> one of my favorite actors. He's awesome. He's also That's the star good. of the National Lampoon Vacation series. This scene is showing pretty much... We've been having a terrible a time parody of We've the Ku Klux Klan. Out. This movie was made in the 1980s. And uh, by then, obviously, the Klan has, has faded a lot in popularity. Um, so now they're more of a symbol of comedy. Kind of a, a sad, comedic, pathetic symbol in popular culture. But this is not how the KKK was portrayed after Reconstruction and during the early 20th century. They had a powerful, mythical, popular image. Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the gradual acceptance of the Confederate flag and the Confederate cause in popular culture and in politics. We're going to talk about how that transformed into a cultural kind of... uh, Nostalgia for the old South. Alright. I hope really, really hope you guys enjoy this podcast. It's gonna be another epic one. Sit back and relax and enjoy. Ape. Go tell him go tell him. I'm gonna tell him go tell him. Tell what they don't tell them We've been underwater since they threw us in the boat Selling cotton picking blues Rock and roll, railroad building Serving white America before we was dope dealing Brick laid the birth of a nation is the rock, white house, black man Plantation, is the rock But we still can't cross the street Without the cops trying to send my man as while the whole neighborhood watch They changed us to the auction block But now we changing the locks Cause even Bill O'Reilly daughter out here drinking some rock Now that's what I call it, 21st Century Fox Kelly trying to tell me white. It's right I just remember stars, the new rock. I pull strings like Welcome, welcome back everybody Welcome I am Chase H I am the CEO of Act, Protect, Engage This is the Ape Academy This song is from the album Based on the movie The Birth of a Nation By Vic Mensa This song is called Go Tell Em Alright I suggest you check out the album, It's Fire. Shout out to The Birth of a Nation. It was a great film. If you guys want to learn about one of the most famous slave revolts in American history, this is a great movie to watch. Very realistic, disturbing, graphic, bloody, but it really shows the plight of slaves in certain areas of this country. All right, all right, all right. Thank you for joining us. Once again, we are back with another amazing episode of the Act, Protect, Engage podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hey, I want to shout out all of my domestic and international listeners. You guys are the reason why I'm doing this. I love history. I love the Second Amendment. I want to spread knowledge, okay? I'm not just doing it for myself. I'm not just doing it to, you know, get recognition. I'm doing it to help spread some knowledge to folks. I've learned so much researching and preparing for these podcasts. That is such a rewarding experience. I just want to share it with everyone else. All right, guys, real quick housekeeping. First things first, please follow us. Actually, first things first, please turn on your post notifications, okay? What that means is that you turn on your notifications so you'll know when new episodes come out. So your phone will will buzz or ring or whatever your phone does to let you know that a new episode of our podcast is now streaming. All right. So that's how you're going to stay caught up with all the new episodes. I'm coming out with a lot of stuff. All right. I want to come out with a lot of stuff in a short period of time because my school is my new uh, semester in school is coming up. I'm a graduate student, so I want to get out. As many podcasts as I can before I start getting really, really busy, okay? So, make sure you're checking the uh, the podcast homepage. Also, we're on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, Google Chrome, iTunes, Radio, iTunes, etc., etc. Any major outlet, you can find us, okay? Also, can you please follow us on IG? At Ape Academy and also at Ape Academy Podcast. We have two IG pages. One is for specifically this podcast, and the other is my general account for all type of cool stuff. Shooting videos, instruction, memes, everything you guys like is on the main page as well. Okay. Also, we are on Twitter at A underscore defensive. We are on TikTok at Ape Academy Pod. We are on Facebook. Ape Defensive Solutions. All right, here we go. This is going to be a great podcast today. Um, And it's really because we're continuing with what we've been talking about with the Confederate flag and the Confederate symbols. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because history isn't dead. It's alive, right? And when we talk about current events within this country when it comes to certain symbols and certain relationships between groups we have to go to history to understand kind of the roots of it and I remember when back when President Trump was in office the events in Charlottesville at UVA which is where I went to school I went to school at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and in Charlottesville they had a uh, what was it a Protect the 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 Right rally or something I can't remember the exact name of it Basically, people were protesting the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue, all right? So that kind of brought all these cultural movements together into direct conflict. And me seeing that a few years ago and then starting this podcast, I really wanted to explore why is that such an explosive topic? Why are people so vehemently, vehemently, (laughs) so against removing any Confederate-type imagery, Right. You would think, listen, like it was a long time ago. They lost. You know, I don't understand why everyone's so attached to this. Right. You would. That's what you would think, especially as a Yankee, as I did my research. And, uh, you know, I was always a history major. I always loved history in school. In college, I was a history major. So I had been studying this for a while. And I was just like, man, I understand, you know, why they would want to connect to that heritage, but why fight? Why be violent over it? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it. We've been talking about it for the past, this is the third episode, so the past two episodes before this one, all right? We're going to continue. Today's episode is called Transforming the Flag, A New Meaning for the 20th Century Landscape. All right? My main source is the Confederate battle flag, America's most embattled emblem, history.net, history.com, and of course my alma mater, the University of Virginia. All right, here we go. Gradual acceptance, gradual acceptance. The first depiction of the Confederate flag in popular culture, separate from any official ceremonial uh, remembrance of the Civil War was on the back cover of Collier's Weekly Magazine on March 9th, 1907. All right, so. Up until this point, post-Civil War, the Confederate flag was really only seen in public during like memorial services, right? So every year, especially in the South, citizens would gather together and they would remember the Confederate soldiers. They would kind of reminisce and think about the war and honor their relatives and their ancestors, right? But this is really the only time that the Confederate flag was flown, was during these ceremonies when people were specifically conducting some sort of ceremony, Confederate ceremony. Now, in 1907, in March, a weekly magazine actually put a picture of the Confederate flag on their cover, on their back cover. What happened was Olds Motor Works of Detroit, Michigan, they were promoting their new car. It was called the Model A, and they wanted to brag... And show the world that their car, their model, had just completed a 1,400-mile road trip from New York City to Daytona Beach, Florida. So they figured, hey, we need to do some advertising for this new model. We want to sell a lot of cars. Displayed on the hood of this car was a gigantic American flag along with a prominent rectangular Confederate battle flag. So this was the St. Andrews flag that we talked about with the cross on the red field. This was on the back cover. So on the back cover of Collier's Magazine in 1907, they had a picture of their model car. They had a big old American flag on the hood. And guess what? Right next to it was the Confederate battle flag. Of course, this was noticed by a lot of the Confederate veteran organizations. They loved it, right? They're like, finally, like someone is acknowledging our flag you know, apart from these dry, boring ceremonies that we do every year, someone is in popular culture, someone from the North is actually kind of being like, hey, you know, site, right. like we're going to put the flag on there. They really wanted to kind of reach out to potential customers in the North and in the South. So that's why they did it. Confederate Veteran Magazine noted that the magazine display was, quote, the first illustration of any Northern concern giving prominence to the Confederate flag. Let it not be the last. They continued, the flag should be the pride of every American. <laughs> I don't know about that, but that's what they thought. They were really, really excited to see that the Confederate flag was you know, on, in the public eye for the first time. At that point, the Collier's cover was a rare example of the Confederate flag being used in popular culture. Separate from formal memorial activities. So we just spoke about that a few seconds ago. Looking back at the history from a present day perspective, it is really amazing how rare, how rare the Confederate battle flag was displayed publicly from the end of the Civil War through World War II. The widespread imagery of the flag was not common at all until it began to be associated with the state's rights Party or commonly known as the Dixiecrat Party and this was during the presidential campaign of 1948. Also there was a flag fad in the early 1950s and then of course as we all know the flag was very very common in the battle against racial integration in the 1960s. So. There were only a few instances in American history after the Civil War where the flag was really, really prominent. One, the state's rights party campaign of 1948 led by Strom Thurmond and the other Dixiecrats. The flag fad in the early 1950s, right? So in the 1950s, all of a sudden, people wanted a Confederate flag. People from like California and Michigan wanted to fly a Confederate flag. You know how people get into these fads Like, you know, like these little challenges on TikTok and Instagram that everyone starts to do. Back in the 50s, people would see stuff on a magazine, they would see stuff in a movie, and everyone would want one, right? So everyone wanted a Confederate flag. And then in the battle against racial integration, so people were like, yo, black folks are about to be in our schools, they're about to take our buses, they're about to eat in our restaurants. Heck no, let's start flying these flags. Let's remember what we're fighting for, all right? The Olds Motor Company's advertisement was the first of many that displayed the St. Andrew's design as shorthand for the South. The Confederate flag became an easy way to refer to the South without having, having to actually say the South. So it's like a quick way to say the South. So you just put a Confederate flag on your advertisement that automatically says, hey, look, everyone from the South, pay attention to my ad, right? We want to get business from you guys. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of appeal to your Nostalgia, appeal to your southern quote unquote pride, and we're gonna display proudly your flag. In nineteen oh seven, the battle flag had become the symbolic counterpart to the stars and stripes in both the north and the south. Over time, the battle flag had become a more of a neutral symbol in the North. When only 40 years earlier, right, these same people in the North were disgusted by the confederate flag. So within a 40 year span, the confederate battle flag went from being like spit on, people were disgusted, how dare you show that traitor flag? You know, we fought, we died, we bled to fight against this tyranny, this uh rebel tyranny. Why would you display this flag, right? All of a sudden now people are like, "Well, I mean, whatever. <laughs> we don't really care like we're tired" ty- we're tired of fighting over it like you guys can have your flag no big deal alright so attitudes change really fast in public perception and the, the same was, was uh, evident with the flag alright so the, the northern folks once they kind of lost interest in the in uh, punishing the south for what they did in the civil war they kind of were like you know what y'all do whatever you want we don't have time for this all right, so let's talk about the flag within the southern states after re- uh, Reconstruction. Remember, Reconstruction ended in 1877 officially. Reconstruction went from 1865 to 1877. So in that period, there's a lot of radical changes that were happening. The whole culture and economy of the South was kind of turned on its head. Because remember, the South was pretty much destroyed during the Civil War. Not only was the South destroyed, you had the the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. We've already gone over that. And if you don't remember what that is, just either Google it or just go back to our past podcast. These amendments to the Constitution, they ensured certain rights for the newly freed slaves, right? So remember, the same people who were walking around in chains now were walking free. They could own property. They can get jobs. They were entitled an equal wage. This really rattled a lot of people in the South, right? Especially on the state government level, all right? The generation of Confederate vets made sure that their battle flags were enshrined as symbols that would live on well past them. They pushed for the former formal incorporation of battle flags into the official state flags of several southern states. For example, the legislatures of Alabama and Florida, in particular, during the 1890s, they adopted new state flags which featured the plain red St. Andrew's cross on a white field. Alright, so remember, the St. Andrew's cross is that diagonal cross. The Confederate flag that we know of, right, with the blue cross in the red field, on the red field, just imagine that blue cross as a red cross without the stars. So the state flag of Alabama and Florida featured a diagonal St. Andrews red cross as a plain red diagonal cross on a field of white. And even to this day, that is still Alabama state flag. This is 2022. Alabama still had the same state flag that it had in the 1890s, which is incredible. The Confederate governor of California, he recommended that the state incorporate a red St. Andrew's Cross to their state flag, which bore the state seal on a field of white. These changes were approved on November in November of 1900. All right. However, the official record. Right. So if you're going to be like, okay. You know, Chase, I'ma dig up some dirt on these governments. I'm gonna look for the official record where they talk about we need the Confederate flag, we need to show this, we need to show that. If you're looking for an official state record, you're not gonna find it. The official record will show no evidence that these state flags were intended as specific references to the Confederacy. But due to the veteran status of the governors and many of the state of the state lawmakers, The inspiration behind these changes were pretty obvious, right? They didn't have to write in a letter that they wanted to change their state flag to a Confederate-like flag. No one had to write that because everyone knew. The governors were were all Confederate veterans. Everyone who passed the laws were Confederate veterans. A lot of the major business owners in the states were Confederate veterans or were the family members of Confederate veterans. So everyone was kind of linked by this common Cause this common heritage, at least among the white population, and those were the ones that were in power at the time. Out of nowhere in 1894, without any provocation, of course, guess who? Mississippi. Mississippi adopted a new state flag that prominently featured the Confederate battle emblem in the canton, which is in the top left. The flag also included three horizontal bars, red, white, and blue, instead of the red, white, and red of the stars and bars. The resemblance to the original Confederate natural flag of 1860 to 1861 is uncanny. The resemblance is uncanny. Like many other things involving segregation, Jim Crow, race relations, black codes, etc., Mississippi was one of the first southern states to act on it. In a negative way I talked about it before In previous episodes About Reconstruction and the Black Codes The states Where the African American Population was over 50% Like Mississippi where it was 55% And South Carolina where the population was also Very high These states were usually the harshest states When it came to racial equality And and integration and segregation Um, These states were considered deep southern states, the centers of cotton culture, and the center of slavery when slavery was still an institution. So it makes sense that states like Mississippi, uh, South Carolina, and Alabama were some of the most radical states when it came to denying basic human rights to their black populations. Uh, I found that fascinating. Just by coincidence, (laughs) this flurry of flag changes kind of went hand in hand with the passage of formal Jim Crow segregation laws throughout the South. So, of course, right, at the end of Reconstruction, the South, right, decided, oh, you know, all those promises we made, you guys, we made the North, you Yankees, about how we're going to take care of our black folks, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> Sorry. As soon as the troops left, as soon as they left and went home back up north, the South like turned turned to their black folks and were like, yeah, we were kidding. We're passing Jim Crow laws. Stay away from us. That's pretty much what happened. And this went hand in hand. This happened at the same time where everyone was changing their state flag. Was it a coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. I think it was done on purpose. Merely four years before Mississippi changed its flag, the state convention passed, quote-unquote, reforms to the voting laws of the state, effectively disenfranchising most of the African-American citizens. According to the white conservatives who controlled the legislature, quote, Hucksters and their ignorant Negro dupes pulled down civilization. This was in response to the introduction of Negro suffrage. So, after the Civil War, the North was very, very persistent in making sure that the South allowed their black people, at least on paper, to vote. So, they're pissed, right? They're like, our Negroes have never voted and they never will vote. But we have to, we have to appease these Yankees. So what we're going to do is we're going to say they can vote. We're going to pass these laws, but we're going to put a little bit of uh, a little caveat, a little bit of uh, obstacles in the way. All right. We're going to talk about that in one second. The Mississippi plan required a literacy test and a poll tax for all voters. However, there was a catch. Those who enjoyed the right to vote prior to 1866 or 1867 or their linea- their lineal descendants. So, if you were able to vote before 1867, you're good. You can vote. Or anyone who's related to you can vote. <laughs> Everyone c- who could vote before 1867 or any of their lineal descendants could register to vote without paying the tax or taking the test. Since former slaves had not been granted the right to vote until the Reconstruction Act of 1867... These, quote, grandfather clauses prevented blacks from voting while allowing many illiterate and impoverished whites to vote. Also, a lot of the newly freed slaves couldn't read, right? And even if they could, they made these tests ridiculous. Uh, I remember I, I did a podcast a few weeks ago, and it featured a prominent historian from Harvard, Dr. Henry Gates Jr., an African, African-American historian, and he was talking about how you basically had to be a law professor to, pack, to pass the Mississippi Literacy Test. They made you name every vice president of the United States up until that point. They made you name every Supreme Court justice up until that point. Like, even a law professor would have trouble passing the, quote, literacy test. So, really, the newly freed slaves had no chance of passing. During this time period, most states passed laws outlawing the desecration of the Stars and Stripes. Also, many states in the South included in these laws the Confederate battle flag. So no one can uh, desecrate the Stars and Stripes or the Confederate battle flag. The battle flag was not a political football. It was not a political football. No Southern states officially, on the record, promoted the Confederate flag until around 1938 when the South Carolina House of Representatives voted to place the Confederate flag inside its chambers. All right. So no one really mentioned the official Confederate flag until they felt comfortable enough to do so. So this was around 1940. Representative John D. Long of Union County, South Carolina, was the chief sponsor of this vote. Long was the son of the leader of the local Ku Klux Klan in the 1870s. He was a Civil War historian, and he was also a staunch segregationist. Despite subtle associations, the incorporation of the battle flag in state symbols did not directly translate into official political exploitation of the flag, i.e., no Southern politician had the guts or the boldness to publicly link the Confederate cause to official government business. Everyone knew what was going on. It was like an unsaid thing. Wink, wink, nod, nod, poke, poke, right? We know what we're doing. If you are expecting, if anyone out there listening is expecting there to be a boatload of pamphlets, speeches, legislation, or official government actions, championing or speaking favorably about the Confederate Confederate flag, You will be very disappointed. If you're looking for anything on the record during this time period saying, we love the Confederate flag, we hate N-words, this is the white man's flag, and this is the white man's state, you're going to have a hard time finding it. Official records, okay? Despite the vicious, violent, and obvious racism and the Jim Crow legal codes, politicians and officials were very careful not to mention or champion the flag too much. The few candidates that did use the battle flag, they all had legitimate claim to using it, i.e. they were decorated Confederate veterans. So they actually had a legit reason to, to use it because they were using almost, you know, as a political ploy. Like, you know, like a lot of these candidates out here who are veterans, they'll, you know, put American flags on their stuff. They'll put proud veteran. They'll talk about their war experiences, et cetera. According to author John Kosick, who is the author of My Main Source, the reason for this lack of flag, flag exploitation by Southern politicians at the dawn of the, 19th, dawn of the 20th century was multi-layered. For one, many Confederate veterans at this time were still active and very much alive. <laughs> okay? There were They were aging, but they were still very prominent figures in their communities. All right? So, the reason why a lot of politicians didn't throw around the Confederate flag more during the early 20th century was because guess what their their granddads, their fathers were still around. So they couldn't just use their father's battle flag like loosely like oh yeah, I'm going to go to what to Washington DC and kick the Yankees butt. It's like their their dad would be like, "No, do not use our battle flag in your political nonsense." So that's a lot of the reason why you don't see it as much during the early 1900s. Quote, large percentages of office holders throughout the South were Confederate veterans. Understandable, considering that approximately three quarters of military age white Southern males in the 1860s were in the Confederate service. Claiming Confederate veteran status, however, did not make you unique, it did not make you special. Quote, there was less a distinction than a prerequisite. It was more of a requirement to be a veteran to run for political office during that time. Additionally, since there was such a uh, veneration of ancestors and of Confederate veterans, political use of the sacred flag may have been a bit taboo. You weren't really supposed to talk about it. You really weren't supposed to use it in public. Everyone knew about it. You didn't have to talk about it. Many Confederate heritage groups oppose any political use of the flag, This was not restricted to a certain party. Not at all. Confederate heritage groups on both sides of the aisle, Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever, they all were like, you should not be using the flag. All right. Supporters in both parties opposed using the flag as a political football. For example, the United Daughters of the Confederacy opposed and protested the incorporation of the battle flag into Georgia's new state flag. All right, here we go. We're, we're going to start talking about some really, really gritty topics. So hold on to your hats. We're going to talk about the rise of racial violence and the Ku Klux Klan. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Before we do that, I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I know I am. It's pretty freaking dope. Ape. Hey. Do it. Right, we are back. We are back. This song is called Black Moses by Meek Mill and Pusha T. Door. Proper way to... All right. I could go on and on. This album is fire. Yo, if y'all want to hear some good music, the birth of a nation inspired by the movie. All right. Where are we? Where are we at, guys? What are we talking about? What? I need to get my memory checked. You know, a funny story real quick. I keep signing up at the VA for the medical uh, memory test to get my memory tested, but guess what? I keep forgetting to go take the memory test. Ironic, huh? (laughs) Dad joke. All right, anyway, the rise of racial violence and the KKK. Okay, this subject is going to be tough for some people, but I found it pretty fascinating. Mr. Kosick suggests that it was the flag's sacred status that prevented its use during the violent, bloody race riots and the mass lynch- lynchings of post-World War One America. If you guys want to read a, a good book, read Red Summer 1919. It talks about the mass lynchings, the the massacres of black communities during the... 19, 19 during the year 1919 and really after the troops came home from Europe after the first world war. All right, because I think there was a common fear that, you know, these black soldiers are going to come home. They're war heroes. They've been through a lot in Europe and they're going to think that they could change stuff. They're going to come here and they're going to challenge the white man's authority and we can't have that. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to put them back in their place. So there's a ton of race riots a ton of lynchings a ton of violence against the black community in order to keep them down to keep them in their place but even during all this turbulence the portrayal of the Confederate flag by lynch mobs by violent riders was very very rare it was not common late 20th century critics of the Confederate battle flag they have suggested that Confederate flags were carried by bloodthirsty lynch mobs during the 50-year span of brutality in the South and in the Midwest from the 1880s to the 1930s. However, okay, you might hate the flag, but you gotta go on, based off of evidence. However, eyewitness accounts do not match up with these claims, all right? Even the Ku Klux Klan did not use the Confederate flag publicly until the 1940s, all right? Contrary to popular belief, the Klan actually did not use the Confederate flag very often in their early form. In their early days, they almost never used it. Unfortunately for Confederate heritage groups, the KKK have, a, have had a massive role in shaping media perceptions of the Confederate flag. The flag haters have claimed that the KKK adopted the flag early on in its history, and, and they have been using it consistently For the last 135 years, but this is simply not accurate. It's not true. Evidence suggests that the KKK did not embrace the battle flag of the South until the mid-20th century. Let's talk a little bit about the background of the Klan. The Klan was born in a law office in Pulaski, Tennessee in December of 1865. Klan defenders claim that the organization started only as a, quote, social club. Yeah, okay. A bunch of nerds walking around with sheets on their face. But they don't deny that its primary mission was to terrorize and intimidate newly freed African Americans and their, quote, carpetbagger northern Yankee allies. Their social club employed brutally violent tactics In its effort to keep blacks, quote, in their place. By the spring of 1867, the KKK had become a terrorist organization. They had become a full-blown domestic terrorist organization, period. I don't care what anyone says. Similar to ISIS, similar to Al-Qaeda, similar to all these terrorist groups. They might have been worse. They might have killed more people than ISIS, in America at least. The members of the KKK believed that intimidation was needed to curb the growing, growing black political power. In the 1915 film, Birth of a Nation, <laughs> man, this notion was spread in the popular culture of America, right? The Birth of a Nation promoted the notion that the KKK was an unfortunate but necessary instrument to respond to to recent political developments. President Woodrow Wilson has famously declared the film saying it was like, quote, writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it is all so terribly true. The President of the United States at the time loved the film, period. I don't care what anyone says, Woodrow Wilson was one of the worst presidents in history. He was one of the most racist presidents in history. He loved the film. He called it writing history with lightning. What a jerk. The racist views pushed in the film became Southern orthodoxy in many areas of the Deep South. And in the early 20th century, and even today, it commanded a large following. One thing that cannot be denied is that the Klan had a strong Confederate background. They had a massive Confederate background. All 13 founding members were Confederate veterans. Former General George Gordon was elected as the Grand Dragon of the realm of Tennessee. He chose as the Klan's first Grand Wizard, i.e. National President, the Confederate hero and antebellum slave trader, General Nathaniel Bedford Forrest Victims and opponents told Congressional investigators that the Klan Was basically a resurrected Violent wing of the Confederacy All they were doing Was simply continuing the war But taking it underground Striking from the shadows So Nathan Bedford Forrest Was the first grand president Grand wizard of the KKK Nathan Bedford Forrest a Confederate Cavalry genius, really. I mean, he was a genius. For all his faults, he was one of the best soldiers that the Confederacy had. Nathan Forrest was the first president of the KKK, which is insane. There's no evidence existing. You can look for it. You won't find it. That... The KKK used any type of Confederate battle flags in their rituals. No evidence at all. So I know that a lot of people want to say, you know, the early KKK, they fl- they fl- they you know they fl- they flew the flag, they were repping the flag. They simply weren't. All right, they didn't start repping the flag until it became more faddish in the 1940s and 1950s. The organization's official symbol was a triangular pennant with a flying dragon emblazoned with the motto, what always, what everywhere, what by all is held to be true. And it was in Latin. All right, So it was a triangular pen, uh, pennant with a flying dragon emblazoned with these inspirational words. Kossack writes, quote, Clan founders may have declined to use the battle flag because of respect for it or because they feared the consequences of using the emblem of a recently vanquished nation so soon after the end of the war, while federal troops still occupied southern soil. Despite this, it is clear that the clan founders and their admirers held the battle flag in special reverence. They definitely did. They definitely rocked with the battle flag. No one can deny that. It doesn't matter what anyone says. They were rocking with the flag. Like, for sure. For example, Confederate Veteran Magazine carried an obituary of one of the early founders of the KKK, John B. Kennedy, and it featured a late photo in which he poses in his Confederate uniform with the battle flag of the 3rd Tennessee Infantry. Three of the six Three of the six original clan founders were members of the same Tennessee Infantry unit. How ironic. Interest in the clan spiked following the release of Birth of a Nation in 1915. The charismatic leadership of Grand Wizard William J. Simmons, combined with the creation of elaborate structures based on these exotic rituals, <laughs> so basically it was like the perfect organization for nerd rednecks. These exotic rituals were based on fraternal organizations. This really helped expand clan membership. They kind of tried to make it cool to be part of the clan. All the cool kids, all the cool white boys joined the KKK, man. We do really cool rituals. We have really cool names, like the Cyclone, like the Grand Wizard, like the Grand Dragon. All your freaking nerd fantasies can come true. Just join your local chapter. That's what they said back then. By 1921... KKK membership exceeded 100,000 men its members wielded considerable political power particularly in Oklahoma and Indiana get this the the states with the most Klan membership weren't even southern states in fact my home state of Pennsylvania has a huge still to this day a huge Klan presence so the most powerful Klan members were residents of Oklahoma and Indiana however internal strife and a lot of legal troubles racked the first clan the early clan and its memberships quickly faded away but as we all know the clan kept coming back it won't die like a cockroach keep stepping on it it keeps coming back so the clan reinvented itself by the midnight uh, by the mid 20th century the clan had transformed itself again now, this quote unquote new clan was a super patriotic, 100% red blooded American organization. Their primary targets were foreigners and Catholics, not blacks. All right. Now, that's not to say they didn't go after black folks because they did. But now they kind of shifted their focus. They wanted to kind of get the heat off them a little bit because remember, the government was on that ass. The government was like, okay, you guys are lynching. Terrorizing, killing black people. So like, oh no, 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 we don't do that anymore. All right, we just don't like Catholics. Catholics are the problem, guys. Catholics. All these foreigners coming in—they're the problem too. Confederate heritage organizations—they refuse to support this new version of the Klan, but not for the reason you may think. (laughs) They didn't—they didn't oppose the new Klan because they're like, oh, you guys are terrible. No they opposed the new clan because they didn't think they were holding true to the original principles they were disappointed that they didn't go hard enough like y'all soft like the new clan is soft as I don't know what they said that uh, the original intentions of the founders were not being followed that they were being disrespected however this, this second version of the clan was not without confederate linkage some of the local chapters called claverns had the names of Confederate generals and original KKK figurehead such as John B. Gordon and Nathan Bedford Forrest. These names were used in local chapters. All right. It isn't surprising, however, that the new symbols of the Klan, that the new symbol was the stars and the stripes. That was not surprising because they were trying to remember, reinvent themselves. The earliest documented use of Confederate symbols by the Klan was in its third incarnation in the late 1930s and 1940s. On March 26, 1939, a hooded Klan honor guard carrying rifles, the stars and stripes, and a Confederate naval jack marched through the streets of Atlanta during a large Confederate Memorial Day parade. That's kind of ridiculous that they were actually honoring Confederate Memorial Day. Remember, this is the 1930s, early 1940s. Stetson Kennedy, who was a Florida-born labor organizer and KKK investigator, what he did was he went undercover. He decided to go undercover to dig up some dirt on the Klan, right? He wanted to prove that they still use Confederate flags in their rituals, and they did. In the May 27th, 1946 issue of Life magazine, a photo sequence showed a KKK altar. Spread with the Confederate flag, the Bible, a sword, and flanked by the stars and stripes. Also, they added a Christian cross in the mix. Oh my gosh, it's just ridiculous! All right, so let's go over what we do, what we just talked about a little bit. Okay, so this is what happened, guys. Pretty much, the clan reinvented themselves three times. Three times. All right. First thing. First thing was the original clan. The first president of the original clan was Nathan Bedford Forrest, okay? That was the original president. And this clan, they although they didn't use the Confederate flag very much, there was a reason for that. Because it was hot. The streets were hot, man. Union troops were everywhere. The government was breathing down their neck and they really couldn't afford to put the Confederate flag out there like that. So they had to use different flags. They had to create their own unique flag to kind of hide their intentions. Then you got the second clan, which was, which came of age, which became popular after the 1915 movie, Birth of a Nation. So the Klan membership skyrocketed after that. That really went when they created their unique, elaborate structure and all their rituals and their... their Really like uh, fantasy Dungeons and Dragons type type roles like the Grand Wizard, the Grand Dragon, the Cyclops, all that type of stuff. That's when they started all that. All right, they started all that in their second incarnation. Their third incarnation was in the late 1930s and the early 1940s, and this is when they really started pushing the Confederate cause right they really started repping the Confederacy because what they discovered was that slowly over time the civil rights movement was gaining momentum and I'm actually reading a book about the 1948 Democratic Convention and the election of President Harry Truman in 48 right in 48 this was probably the most contentious election in American history we're going to do a podcast on that also a little bit later alright so this is what we're ending with today our next episode is going to be about the confederate flag on college campuses and it's going to be crazy I went to a southern school University of Virginia I know all about this All right, but we're going to start with this the battle flag on college campuses a southern college fraternity the Kappa Alpha Order I don't know if you you guys have if you guys went to college in the south have a Kappa Alpha chapter the Kappa Kappa? I can't say it. The Kappa Alpha Order may have been responsible for the spreading presence of the Confederate flags on college campuses. K.A. was founded in December of 1865 at Washington College in Lexington, Virginia. A school that guess who the president of the school was? That hired retired General Robert E. Lee as president. (laughs) So this... Greek fraternal organization was founded at a school that had as its leader one of the most famous, if not the most famous, American general in history. The fraternity was basically a Confederate memorial organization. All right, so what we're going to do now is we're going to read their essential teachings. This is from their essential teachings, all right? Quote. members should cherish the southern ideal of character that of a chivalrous warrior of Christ the knight who loves God and country honors and protects pure womanhood practices courtesy and magnanimity of spirit and prefers self-respect to ill gotten wealth that was their kind of their mission statement their motto Represent the Old South, wherever you went. As the decades passed, the memories of the Old South slowly faded away in popular memory. Kappa Alpha ensured that their connections to Confederate roots assumed a modern retro fad. Right? So it was more of a faddish thing, like a college kid thing. Oh, this is the cool thing to do now, guys. Let's have an Old South ball. Let's have a... A Dixie ball with all the ladies coming out in their nice dresses. And we got the, uh, we got the mint juleps and we got the, the banjo and the band playing. We got a big old Confederate flag. Let's go ahead and do a Jubilee. That's what they were doing back then. It was like the cool thing to do was you have a old South ball to represent your heritage. By the 1920s, Kappa Alpha chapters around the South began holding Dixie dances, soon called Old South Balls, full of Confederate uniforms, 1860s dresses, mint juleps, and at many schools, Confederate battle flags. To be freaking continued in part four. Thank you for joining me, guys. I hope you learned a little bit. I apologize for some of the stumbling and bumbling. It's a passionate subject of mine. Plus, my voice gets pretty tired after about 40 minutes. All right, y'all. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, turn on your post notification button so you can see these new episodes when they come out. Also, we want to thank all of our listeners, all you guys listening. Thank you so much. We love you. Don't forget, our final part of this series, the Confederate Battle Flag, will be airing, let's see, Monday. Monday. We're going to put it out. we got to do some more research. God bless you all. Stay safe. Put God and your family first. Stay positive. All right? We love you. Ape. I want a whip in a chain. I wanna whip in the chain. I wanna whip in the chain. What ain't no done switch up the game? I wanna whip in the chain. Hustle for whips in the chain. Yeah. I wanna whip in the chain. Yeah. Yeah, we don't see it the same. Yeah. This is a new generation. We ain't scared of, we ain't scared shit. of shit. We ain't bad for shit. No. This nigga's dead for this. I wanna whip in the chain. Thank you for joining us. God bless y'all. Stay safe. H